0: What, in addition to the right equipment, does it take for the job of
1: film editing? Welcome to The Cutting Room, the official podcast of AOTG.com, and I'm your host, Gordon Burkell, and this week we're going to be interviewing Rob Legato. Now, if you are a fan of The Lion King, either the original or the new one, you're going to want to hear this interview with Rob, because we discuss transitioning from the animation world into this live action world? And how do you take things that were over the top, exciting in one world, and make sure that they're still exciting for the viewer in this new world? With all that said, here's my interview with Rob Licato. You worked on The Jungle Book before The Lion King, so I'm wondering, what did you learn from The Jungle Book, technique-wise, or even technology-wise, that you brought with you to... The Lion King?
2: Well, one of those is just yeah, it's pure experience, just having done it once, shooting it virtually once and lighting it and all this stuff, you 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 just get better at it, you know, literally just get better at it. We built some better virtual reality tools to um, make it more akin to um, the same experience you have when you're shooting something live. So we used the game engine where we didn't use uh, that. We used a different sort of program before. So um, what I was missing a little bit in the other one is although I thought we did pretty well, it could have been better mm. lighting-wise and, and fluidity of and camera movement and, and sort of the offhanded nature of a live-action film. So there was that. And I think, you know, that was less to do with me, but the animators got better at animating the animals. And I thought it was very good back then, but the new ones are much more fluid and graceful. And I think the rigging got better. You know, I think, I think everybody across the board, because they got to do it once, said, oh, well, now that I have done it and i did my best idea and that seemed to work pretty well i think i could still do better so i think you Mm -hmm. saw the next you know evolution up it's almost like it skipped a step instead of going from one to two or one to one to three you know Mm -hmm. from that seemed to get that much better uh and, and you know anytime you have experience shooting something like that before you bring all that knowledge uh, with you and you avoid certain mistakes or have more patience or, you know, so I, I think it, it, it's kind of intangible. It's not like a tremendous huge thing. You know, all across the board I think everything got got better. You know, when I
1: was doing research for this, some of the footage I saw of on set, it looked like they were just sort of almost shooting nothing. <laughs> and, you know, it was all yeah. being placed in by the, the engine. And I'm wondering, how do you deal with you know, performance? Because if we do something like Endgame, they can map on, you know, Mark Ruffalo's face onto Smart Hulk. But in this case, we have animals, so you can't simply just take that information and place it on an animal's face because it would look kind of weird. Um, So how do you get the realism in the performance uh, through these animals?
2: Well, the the realism comes later. I mean, everything's kind of a multifaceted uh, um, thing where you could block out like a regular live action scene and make a great actor look like a bad actor by inappropriately blocking them. So you don't give them the tools they need to make the performance more believable, even though they're very gifted at it. Mm -hmm. they're making them stand in the wrong spot or make them uncomfortable, things like that. So part of the ritual of what we're doing is setting it up correctly. So we went location scouting, found the optimal place where they'd be. And then you know, we had some experience and John and Andy and uh, the rest of us have experience blocking it out to get the best out of it. So, you know, like like leaving an actor with egg on his face when very hard to act your way out of it, when you should be on somebody else, when you're shooting at or you should be in a wider shot or, you know, whatever. So the first thing you do is you set up the template or the foundation to be as good as it can be. And then you shoot it appropriately, knowing that it's going to be good later, mm-hmm. knowing that you're going to linger on that face because you're going to get some emotion from it, because that's the reason why you picked shooting the close up in the first place and having them block to camera so that they would be in that spot because there is going to be a reaction. You know, like when we shoot regular live action movies, we have the actors come in, we kind of block it out, figure what they're doing. They're not doing a hundred percent performance. They're doing like 30%. They might even have the script in their hand. But we kind of know, you know, the, you know, that, yeah, it feels good if you went here. It feels good if you went there. Then they go away and we block it out with camera moves with the stand-ins who are not actors Mm. and are not necessarily very good at it and it's a little stiff knowing that when the real actors come back it's going to be great because we know that they can pull it off so it was very similar to that where we did uh, animation just good enough to know that we would deliver the goods later but linger on the face because there was going to be something's going to be happening there more than you're seeing so you have to kind of use your imagination a little bit it's not quite the same as all going to linger on this and that that's also an editorial decision yeah um, you know it's not just a shooting decision that that that's part and parcel of that and that again goes back to the experience of having shot the first movie knowing what we saw then and what it was going to ultimately be you alter your perception of it you're able to look through the mechanics to the to what it's really going to look like mm-hmm. and you know the, the, the' very subtle things like in in scar is that he's always kind of in the shadow of mufasa and he's blocked out in such a way that you know, it's a subliminal thing. You may pick up on it, you may not, but you kind of feel something because the lighting is telling you the story as well as the story is telling you through the subtext is telling you the story. So all those little tiny things are the nuances that make you know, some of your favorite movies, your favorite movies, The mm-hmm. some title of those make it a rich meal. You know, and that's again from having experienced, you know, a very experienced uh, director and, and writer, whatever their, their, their films are, have that much more finesse.
1: One of the questions I had, and this is just having seen the original animation, in traditional animation, you can have characters be exaggerated and do really crazy things. Whereas in this world, it, I mean, it's live action in a sense, even though it's a lot of it's animated so what were the discussions like around recreating moments or recreating scenes and like how far were you able to push uh certain elements to get you know an interesting smile or smirk um you know but obviously you couldn't have timon and simba swinging on trees and stuff um i I guess yeah well i mean yeah. yeah
2: Yeah, I mean, the idea was that, you know, A, we're making a live action version of the movie. So there is a restriction that you get away with an animation or a musical or a theatrical performance that you don't have in a live action because you break the remote live action mm-hmm. or you violate the that concept. And so, you know, our decision was that we were going to make it a live action looking movie and the magic of the fact that we were able to place cameras and light it and and block the actors out in in a, you know cinema dramatic form would cover a lot. I mean, even when you direct actors, there's sometimes you know I've done this before in certain Martin Scorsese and all these other directors there before is you steal a take from another scene or another mm. line that that uh, you find that reaction plays better against what the other person's saying. So you're you're creating context, and the context makes you read the emotion is if it's a genuine uh, reaction or, or, feeling that you get from, uh, uh, you know, from watching things. So our job on this one is to create the context so that when you like, like we'll look at the, the scene with uh, Mufasa dying, and
0: mm-hmm.
2: um, baby Simba goes up to him, you know, what just happened, you know that he's trying to get him to come back to life and he can't. So when the camera is in on it, you don't need to do a whole lot to infer the emotion that you would be feeling if you were him. He doesn't have to do, you know, uh, you know, a lot of times when you do a live action film, if you want somebody to cry, it's a little overboard. Mm-hmm. You get much more emotion if you tell them, try not to cry. And the trying not to has much more emotional impact. It's subtler. It's more, it's more real. The, the theatricality of overacting and, 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 and crying on camera Sometimes defeats it gives it a, an artificial flair to it, mm-hmm. and so our job was more: don't do that, uh, don't overact. And cartoons are—you're allowed to do whatever, and everything's there's, everything's fair game. Uh, it doesn't take you out of the movie. Uh, and maybe it would take you out of the movie if you made it too realistic because mm-hmm. you're used to cartooning nature of it. And then and, and you walked in seeing a cartoon and you wouldn't disappoint it. I mean, you were seeing stuff that's exaggerated. And again, if you're doing a live action movie, you know, and I've shot, you know, and I did Hugo. I shot um, a, a lot of the stuff with a dog in it. Mm-hmm. And you basically set up the shot have the context of what he's supposed to be seeing or doing or reacting to. And you wait for the trainer to get the reaction that you want and you slot it into that moment. And it looks like the dog reacted the way he wanted to, but it's really all context that makes it, makes it seem like he's much more sentient than the dog really is. Yeah. You know, he's looking for food, but yet it looks like he's looking for affection and really not, you know, it's, it's the opposite of that. So Any I the jungle book with the baby. Yeah, and uh, the baby is reaching up and trying to pet. Well, the baby was reaching for an iPhone. Yeah, <laughs> and and that's how we shot it. And so it looks like the baby's doing what he's supposed to be doing. But you know, it's contextual. He's not re- so you read emotion into it. Easier to read emotion into a human than just yeah. an animal. Um, and some animals are more expressive than others, or whatever. But that, but that that's the concept that we're going for. Mm-hmm. And so once you start down that path, you can't really violate it. And then I think also, you know, everybody, you know, a lot of people are saying, well, it wasn't as emotional. It's like, well, if it was overdone and hammy, it wouldn't be that emotional either. It would be really, you know, it would really be too much, like a bad actor. So, you know, there could be criticism in the other direction uh, from that.
1: It sounds like you went against all the advice of don't work with kids and animals in film and <laughs> decided to... Yes. work with kids and animals. Well, you have no
2: choice when you're, when you're handed to them and you have to make now make that work. And <laughs> it's difficult filming, for sure. Oh, the yeah. baby now runs the set. When yeah. the baby is ready to work, you're working. When the baby does not want to move, you're not doing anything. You're just doing what the baby wants. And it's easier for me because I could direct it and shoot it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but if you're an actor, you're like, you know, uh, uh, basically, essentially like you're a kid, all the attention is going to the other thing and not me. And yeah. uh, uh, and, and I think for actors, it's really difficult to work with animals and and, uh, and 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 uh, kids because you're 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 the the you know second fiddle in the scene. As long as you get the kids to do something, you know you're fine.
1: Now, what would you say was the the most challenging scene in in The Lion King for you to to do, and and what was it about that scene that was challenging?
2: For me, I mean, I think everybody will have a different uh, point of view. Is some of the musical numbers were. You know, because you, you're kind of leaping into theatricality more. You know, it's easier, almost easier to do drama and live stuff than it is to do this lightness of touch that is not so light that it becomes cartoony but it also becomes entertaining you know and we looked at a bunch of musicals and things like that and it was kind of hard because you kind of have to work it all together at the same time and the bifurcated nature of animating it first and and, then shooting it second and then trying to go back and touch it up is not quite as remote if you have everything live like Leslie Berkeley did on camera so and part of it is like well how far can we stretch this and without seeing the whole film put together and testing out a scene and seeing if it works. It's like, you know, you could do more adventuresome camera work. You could do more adventuresome lighting, and it'll still play. It'll still hold water. So that that became harder because it wasn't as easy to expect a result that you know that you can get. It's a little left up in the air. And so those were harder to do. The action scenes were fun and easy to do. Those are those are, you know, there's a multitude of different angles and shots and editing, you know, rhythms that you can make that work. But the other one is a little more tricky. You know, it's more, you know I got to appreciate the, the Busby Berkeley for the world who did that sort of stuff oh, and did it so well back in the 30s and 40s and 50s and stuff like that, where, you know, had a lot of appreciation for him.
1: Now, one of the things that stood out for me in this film was the eyes in mm-hmm. the animation and the fur in particular how realistic they were and one of the things you know whenever i've talked to vfx artists they always talk about the uncanny valley and the fear of sort of falling into it so how did you guys tackle particularly the eyes cuz it it almost felt like you guys set up the opening scene to show you know when the the monkey rips the the branches or whatever it is you, you know there's a close up of mm-hmm. his eyes and then there's a close up of simba's eyes and so i'm just wondering how you guys tackled it to get to get such a realistic feel?
2: Uh, well, a lot of it is, A, the, the modeling of the eye. So, uh, uh, you know, a, lo- a lot of things like in the end Valley your taste functions. And usually, this will sound terrible, hopefully I don't where this incorrectly, correctly, but if you're not a director of talent, you're not a actor, you're not a makeup person or whatever, you may settle for a facsimile of something that looks real, but you don't really have the fidelity to say, no, that's not. And mm-hmm. we need to push further. So, you know, a lot of the stuff you see it may be that the personnel, people doing it, don't know what it should look like. And so they stop at a certain point and things look like they're easier than they are. When you look at the eyes, the eyes are a living, breathing item. Mm-hmm. They move, they fluctuate, they, you have controls on them. Um, when the light hits it, it has a slight amount of movement because the iris is changing. Uh, When you're looking at something, your eyes tend to bulge. And if you just stuck an eyeball in there, like a glass eye in someone's head, it doesn't react to anything. It doesn't do anything. Mm -hmm. It has no life to it. And so it tends to have this stillness and, and blank stare. You know, like if you ever saw a picture of somebody who passed away with their eyes still open, it's unmistakable that there's no focus on it. And so as people who observe this sort of stuff, they, you know, were very good about that. That, that requires a whole level of animation and appreciation for the life that, within it. Mm-hmm. And when you see something you're, uh, and you're panning around a room and then you kind of focus on something, your eyeballs, the muscles move and they change. And if you're reacting to light, it changes. And, and all that reads, all that, all that is, is uh, you, you do get a sense of it. Uh, so that, adding all that in, now the people did the hair and the fur, like I don't even know how to explain what they did it was just so great i yeah. you know came back and it was like i, I still marvel at it uh, i was just doing a reel for the academy on the, on the movie and i look at some of the close ups of the lion like who came up with all, every hair that is there's the short fur then there's the the long stringy hair and the tensile strength of the hair yeah. how you know, kind of wiry it is and then the then the really thick you know whisker hair it's like the attention to detail is so incredible. And
1: so different. That
2: I'm not, I don't know how they do it. And it's, you know, again, it's, you know, it's getting good at something. You do want to go, ah, mediocre. That was fair. Next time I do it, I'll get better at it. Next time I do it, I'll get better at And all of a sudden you're playing championship tennis. You know, you've got yeah. so much practice that you just get, you know, and I think that's what happened is that these people who were the unsung heroes of the movie got really good at it and instituted new ways of doing things. And and also I think our tech anims, you know, adds a lot. The animation is fantastic in terms of the, the biology of it and the behavior of it and all that. And then you add this other layer on it, which is that skin is draped over that musculature. So when you, when the animator just moves the leg, he's not really moving the muscles that expand the contract to do other things it's a byproduct and just physically moving because the rig is set up so correctly. And so when they're doing their fluid animation, they don't have any of that stuff and it looks good and it looks terrific. All of a sudden you see this extra layer of breathing and, mm-hmm. and things that are just added to the thing. It, be- it comes to life. It becomes like a living, breathing creature. And you could almost swear that it's, it knows what it's looking at and it's focusing and it's doing all the things that you uh, think you see when you see a lion and, and all that. So it, it's, uh, you know, those guys are in there, just remarkable, yeah. remarkable talent.
1: Well, and I was going to say all those little details with the different fur, like the fur that you were saying, but then the different types of animals with different ways that their hair are going to play, like Scar's drastically different from Simba. Mm-hmm. And it's just phenomenal how each of them looked so real.
2: Again, that's, that's I think it's experience, having done it a bunch of times. Mm-hmm. If you do it once, you kind of think that you kind of cross the finish line. And then mm-hmm. when you go back and look at it again, ah, I could do better. And then all of a sudden you're now, you know, the expert at it. Yeah. Uh, I, I thought that when Rhythm and News went away that, you know, that art form would be able to do these sort of animals where we'd go with it. And it didn't. It got picked up by MPC and those people. And I don't know if it's the same people or not. And they just, but whatever, whoever is doing it is, is phenomenal.
1: Now, what do you think was something you learned on this project that you're going to keep with you for the rest of your career?
2: Well, the the whole idea of, uh, you know, which has been something I've been doing for a long time, is, is virtually filming something to give it this offhanded life that we're talking about in other areas I and mean, the way the animals move and the way they emote, the way the eyes move. You kind of do the same thing with camera and lighting. And a lot of it comes from the methodology of doing it. When you work on a live action set, you're constantly getting live input. And you're saying, ah, if I move the camera a little to the right, a little lower, uh, then the light looks a little more interesting. And so you need to have the ability to do all that. And that's what we were doing on this movie that was different than what we did on Jungle Book, where the lighting was not so integral to the, the, the camera placement and the camera work, but it really is in real life. You look at the input and you move and alter and do stuff and you compose it slightly different. And it starts to really work in a, in a way that now says that you could shoot something that's totally... I mean, you saw what we're, look, we're, we're shooting, which is nothing. You're aiming at nothing physically, but you are aiming at something specifically when you look through the eyepiece of the camera or the, or the video screen of the camera. And so that uh, will take with me. It's really hard to go back to, or impossible for me to go back to, like, just trying to set up a storyboard frame or a, an angle that I didn't really vet. You know, like if you build a miniature, there's only kind of a couple angles you can shoot it that's kind of predetermined before you artistically found the one angle that made it work the best for the movie. And so now you just have to live with it and it's the living with it part that makes things not look as intrinsic to the movie as the rest of the footage that I like to do. Mm-hmm. So uh, that's what we will take with me is that now I have the setup actually in my house so I could preview and I like the idea of me doing homework, too. I like to do homework anyway. But, um, I'll, you know, the night before, I could walk, even if it's a live action set and not a, I could put the set in VR, walk around, add lights, move stuff around, kind of look with different lenses. So when I show up on stage the next day, I've already gone through 50 what-ifs scenarios that came up with the best one and I could optimize my time on the stage to make it that much better. Oh, wow. And without it, you can't do that. You know, you're good at it, you know, and, and you'll come up with something, but it would be like, well, you know, sometimes you, you go back and, well, if I had to do it over again, I would have done
0: that. Mm-hmm.
2: Well, this allows you to do it over again without any penalty. And so that, that I'll take with me. And I think the knowledge that you could create anything with enough fidelity that it no longer has the connotation of as well as CG as if somehow that that is more artificial than the artificial nature of the movie. You know, the sets aren't real, the costumes aren't real, the actors aren't real, you know, the reading lines, they're using props that somebody built for them that day. And, you know, there is no, there's no real reality in that, but because of your skill level, the cinema of it, feels like it is because you know where a light should go, you know where something you photograph should be and all that stuff. Um, And this is the same thing. So now you could have the same fidelity, same artistry, and not this separate, like what appears to be a technical group of people doing Mm -hmm. it. It's really just all art. And you just, and then once you do it once, like once you do it like in a Lion King, then other people go, well, now I can do it because I've seen, you know, I've seen that you could get there. So now I know that that's what I strive for is to do that. So that, that I think is something that you, you carry with you is like it's no longer the last resort. It could be the first resort mm. and get you everything you want and not, and not the other way around. Yeah, you know, everybody, everybody cries about you know, like we want to do everything in camera. It's like, yeah, sometimes in camera doesn't work though, <laughs> and uh, it all sounds great on paper. You know, it's like people, you know, the the controversy between film and and, and digital. It's like, oh, uh, but the but the authenticity of film. is like, yeah, it's bullshit. It, it, there isn't any.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: You know, you're you're just you're 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 holding on to a religion that is uh, that that has been outdated at this point, point. and um, the same is kind of true with the. You know, some things you want to do in camera, some things are easier to do in camera, some things, if, they're, if it's applicable, but not everything is applicable. You know, some things are not, some things are better done, you know, and now that it can be done with this kind of fidelity and the hair and the texturing and all that stuff and make you believe that thing is really existing, you can now tell better stories. They don't have to be outlandish, you know, visual effecty looking movies either. They can be pretty realistic gritty you know, films that I, you just found the best way of filming it. Hmm. And it's all it's all so art, you know, it's all it's all the skill and the taste level of who's ever doing it yeah. that makes the movie better. You
1: know I have one last question that I like to ask everyone I interview, uh and that's what's your favorite guilty pleasure film to watch?
2: Um, hmm, it's the guilty pleasure part I don't know about. Um, hmm, I'm trying to think about it. there's one film I like that was um I don't remember the name of it now. I like fables like It's a Wonderful Life. I love those sorts of movies. And this was, I think, called Family Man. It's with Nicolas Cage and T. Leone. Oh
1: yeah, yeah, I remember. And, that and
2: one. believe it or not, it was it was directed by Brett Ratner, who is not known for doing anything with that kind of lightness and and touch and all that stuff. And it was just a fun movie. I mean, I I, I could always I could watch that movie a bunch of times. And and that's the only Brett Ratner film I would ever watch. And, and that that I, I found, you know, just vastly entertaining. And, and it's not one that everybody knows about or, or you know. And, you know, there's the classics. I mean, you know, one of my favorite films of all time is The Godfather. And I'll watch that, you know, when I need inspiration for something, I'll put it on. But I wouldn't call it a guilty pleasure.
1: Yeah. It, like, yeah, of course.
2: You know, it's, it's homework. Um, there's another one that it's not, has be, hasn't become a guilty pleasure, but I remember the, the, the horrific reviews of this film called Stuber just came out.
0: Oh yeah. It's a, okay.
2: uh, an overdriver and it just got horrifically panned, just like, you know, absolutely just dumped on. Yeah. And I was on a plane and I put it on cause I just wanted to see how bad bad can be. And it was like, Man, this is a really funny film. This is really good. Yeah. I enjoyed the hell out of it. And uh, and it would be something that I wouldn't tell everybody. It's like, yeah, I'm a fan of Stuber. <laughs> um, but, um, you know, I was. You know, I just give credit where credit's due. I think, it, I think it turned out really well.
1: Well, thank you so much for letting me interview.
2: Oh, you're welcome. My pleasure.
1: I'd like to thank Rob Legato for allowing me to interview him. I'd also like to thank Naraj Patel for cutting this episode. I'm your host, Gordon Burkell. Thanks for listening.